So if you ask people what turns them off to Christianity, you usually get a wide variety of responses. For some, it was maybe a, a personal hurt that they went through. For others, it is, um, uh, you know, maybe like get turned off by politics in the church, stuff like that. But, but one thing that makes everybody's list, it seems, if you're to ask what turns you off against Christianity is the issue of, of hypocrisy. Christians being hypocritical is a, is a big deal. I remember sitting uh, in a, a Hickman swimming pool watching my, my daughter practice with another woman who's a friend of mine and Christine's, and, and she, she, I don't think she'd consider herself an atheist, but she'd always kind of go back and forth between religion and atheism, and she was just was always unsure. And, and, and knowing that I was a pastor, she was telling me how much she hated the hypocrisy of Christians. And, and, I, and I looked at her and I said, Heather, you're sounding a lot like Jesus. And the eyes, she just got these big eyes because the last person she identifies with is Jesus. And I said, Heather, the person who is most against Christianity, or most against, I'm sorry, hypocrisy, is not some, somebody who's attacking Christianity. The person who's most against hypocrisy, well, that's Jesus. In Matthew 23, Jesus says, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. So now he's going to explain what a hypocrite is. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will also be clean. So Jesus uses a cup as a metaphor, a cup as a metaphor for our life, and he says that a cup can appear to be clean on the outside, but inside it can be filthy. If you have stayed at a hotel lately, you might wish you had seen this video from a Dallas news station. It was a news report a few years ago on them examining uh, hotels and, and how clean they are, shall we say. As tough as it is to travel these days, it can feel nice to get to your hotel room. You can relax, watch TV, pour yourself a drink. Or maybe not. In hotel after hotel after hotel, iTeam hidden cameras expose a dirty little secret. So it could be six years that this cup has never touched really hot water. Or soap. Or soap. Or been sanitized in any way. Correct. Randy Searles is talking about how the guest glasses and coffee cups were cleaned at the six-year-old Embassy Suites Hotel in Alpharetta, a hotel where he used to work as a manager before he was fired for an unrelated issue. Basically what they're doing there is using a uh, glass can cleaner to spray into the uh, glasses, wipe them out, and put them, and put them back. We booked a room at the Embassy Suites to see for ourselves. Our hidden camera captures the housekeeper putting the glasses into the dirty sink. Then she sprays a blue liquid on them. Take a look, a liquid that's labeled do not drink. Then she rinses them off and dries them. They never leave the room. Well, this is not an acceptable practice. We wondered if the Embassy Suites was the only hotel not washing their guest room glasses the right way. So we checked in for two nights at this downtown Holiday Inn. And at the Sheridan Galleria Suites in Cobb County. We were clear that one person would stay one night, but another person would take the room the second night. Once inside, we filled our drinking glasses with soda, and we marked them with lipstick. 
So as housekeeping came in, we left with hidden cameras rolling. You have quite nice one. At the Holiday Inn downtown, it happened again. Watch the housekeeper clean our dirty glasses. She turns on the water, simply rinses them out, and sets them back out to be used again. Now at the Sheridan Galleria Suites, what we capture here is tough to swallow. Our housekeeper sprays some sort of liquid on our glasses, glasses that are sitting in our dirty sink. Then she rinses them out. This whole time she's wearing a glove. This is what we know about that glove. Just before washing our glasses, this housekeeper walked into the bathroom. Some water swishes. Now listen. She flushes. Then she walks out wearing that glove and washes our drinking glasses. But she's not done yet. She grabs our dirty washcloth, sniffs it, then dries our glasses. We tried to talk to Sheridan management about what we captured, but they would not sit down with us because, quote, it's too controversial an issue. It's pretty disgusting. So ever since I saw that a few years ago, I've never drank out of a hotel glass since then. Uh, but that's the picture Jesus is using, right? It's a picture of hypocrisy. A, a cup or our life can look clean on the outside, but on the inside be disgustingly dirty. Luke chapter 12. Meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered, so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. It's interesting that, that first, that, that there's this crowd of many thousands. Some people are against kind of larger churches because they don't seem real or authentic. Jesus wasn't. Jesus had many thousands who at times would come and listen to him teach. But, but what I find more interesting this morning is that when Jesus had many thousands of people there, the thing that he wanted to talk to them about, the thing that was on the top of his mind, the thing that he wanted to warn them about because it was such a serious danger to their soul was the issue of hypocrisy. Think of all the things that Jesus could have started with, but he said, we need to talk about the hypocrisy. It is the sin of the Pharisees, and when he says it is like yeast, what he is saying is that it spreads and infects an entire community. In classical Greek, the word for hypocrisy simply meant actor. They would have stage plays, and a, 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 a small cast would take on many different roles and characters. And so uh, an actor would take a, a mask and hold it up and act out that character, and they would go off stage and take another mask and put it on and act out a different character. And, and so uh, the, the mask was, was a hypocrite. Now, when the biblical authors got a hold of the term, it began to have more of a negative meaning. It began to mean play acting in your faith, pretending pretending to be something that you're not. See, hypocrisy is, is, is trying to put forward an, an outward display of spiritual maturity. It's a, trying to pretend to have some sort of spiritual piety, but in the inside, be far away from God. Now, a hypocrite is not, it is not someone who lives inconsistently. We all do that. In every area of our life, we are inconsistent. If, if that's all hypocrisy means, then, then everybody is a hypocrite in everything, and let's go home. Hypocrisy is something different than that. Hypocrisy is play-acting, pretending 
putting on a show, putting on a front, being two different people in two different places around two different groups of people. It it is pretending to ourselves, to others, and to God. And so Jesus says, I don't want people to take their religion, their Christianity, their faith in a play-acting kind of deal. I don't want you to put up masks like you're an actor. I'm not just interested in the outside of the cup and how clean it looks, but I'm interested in the inside, the inside of your life. This morning, we're going to think about what what hypocrisy, especially when it comes to religion, looks like. What's God's verdict on it? Spoiler alert, religious hypocrisy makes God puke. Last night, we left Jonah after he had been thrown into the stormy sea by a group of sailors. They had done everything they could to save him, but eventually they came to a point where they picked him up and threw him overboard. We pick up in the last verse of chapter 1, chapter 117. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. This great fish that swallowed Jonah has been the subject of much debate over the years. Is this something that actually happened in history, or is it a parable that is more used for its imagery? Now, when Jesus talks about Jonah in the belly of the fish, it sure seems like Jesus considers it to be a historical event. And if you think about it, if you believe in a God who created the world out of nothing, then creating a great fish that could swallow Jonah and keep him in his belly for three days and three nights isn't any more than creating us, creating the world, creating the universe. But the great fish is only mentioned twice in Jonah. I know Veggie Tales, it is the central character, but it is not the central character in this book. When a great fish swallows Jonah, that is a sign to us that something bad is happening to him. This is not a rescue situation. This is God's judgment. Because whenever something is swallowed in the Old Testament, it is always has negative connotations. The, someone's enemies are swallowed up. Jonah is in great danger. Physically, yes, but also spiritually. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Finally, finally we found something that will make Jonah pray. The storm came, and all the sailors prayed, but Jonah wouldn't. The captain went down to wake Jonah up to get him to pray, but he refused. But now, finally, something will cause Jonah to pray. What is it that drives him to pray? His own desperation, that his own needs are at stake, that, that, that something wrong, something painful, something hurtful is happening to Jonah. Jonah now is finally praying to the God he's been trying to escape from. Do you know your prayers will reveal what's important to you? Your prayers will always reveal what is most important in your life. So so if we were just to take a a one-week, a six-week, a a six-month snapshot of your prayers, what would we find that's important to you? Maybe it's health. When, When someone prays a lot for health, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. It just shows that having good health is really important. 
or, or maybe it is school or a relationship. We tend to go to God with the things that are most important in our life. And sometimes, it's happened to me, I know, that I've listened to my prayers and I've thought, you know what's really important to me? Me. Because what I'm always praying for is that my life would get better in some way. When we look at Jonah and what drives him to finally pray, we find out that what's really important to Jonah is Jonah. These next nine verses that we're going to read, it is Jonah's prayer from a belly of a fish. In these nine verses, in this prayer to God, Jonah mentions himself, refers to himself 22 times. Let's read it. Verse 2, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the sea, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath me barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry ground. God's response to Jonah's prayer is to vomit him up. Vomit is not just a word that's disgusting in, in our language, but it was one of the grossest, most disgusting words in, in all of Hebrew that the Old Testament was written in. Just the smell of vomit makes you sick. And Jonah's prayer, as it rose to God, it made God sick. That's his verdict, is that God is sick of Jonah's false spirituality. He's sick of his hypocrisy. He's sick of pretending to be someone he's not. He's sick of play acting before God. See, because as a, as a piece of literature or as religiosity goes, this prayer is a virtuoso. In it, he quotes 12 different psalms. Every word is perfectly in place. So if it were going to be graded on being well-crafted, then it would get an A. But if it were going to be graded on authenticity and realness, well, it failed. See, when God commanded that fish to vomit Jonah up onto dry ground, what God was saying to you and me is that what he really values is what's inside Clean the inside of the cup and the outside will also be clean. What he really values is our heart because our heart is the wellspring of our life. 
What God is saying to you and me is stop play acting, stop pretending to be someone that you're not. Some of you find it very awkward to, to pray with other people, to pray in a small group. Because you just can't quite get the words to come out like everybody else can. Because, because it, when you pray, it just doesn't sound quite like everybody else. And, 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 and you're worried about how it looks. You know, God is concerned with your heart. And you can have the most beautiful prayer in the group. And your heart be far from God. Some of you are afraid to share in a group. You're afraid to open up. Because, you, because you're afraid what other people are going to think. But God is concerned with your heart. You're probably the only person here who has ever taught um, my kids to drive or kids, your kids to drive. That's something that is a harrowing experience. And I will pray for you if you ever have the good fortune of doing that. It, was, it is still, because I still have a 15-year-old. It's one of the scariest things I've ever done. My, my oldest son, Nathan, he got in the car when I was going to teach him to drive, and we had just got out, closed the garage door. We were sitting there in front of the garage door, and I go, okay, let, let's go. Put it in reverse, and let's go. Instead, he put it in drive and hit the accelerator, and we came with like an eighth of an inch of going right through the garage door on his very first attempt. My, my daughter, who is a year younger than him, was next. We we're at a swim meet, and, and I know you guys aren't Columbia Townies, all of you, so you don't know where all this stuff is, but we were up at a high school, Hickman High School, uh, north there on Providence, and we were finishing the swim meet, and we walked outside, it had been raining, and she was 15, and she goes, hey, can I drive home? And I go, mm, sure, but, you know, it's, it's raining, it's wet, so, you know, be careful, it's like lunch hour, you know, be careful, it's, it, 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 go a little slower. And so we get in the car, and we're going down, Providence, everything's going fine until we get to near campus. And, and there's that Taco Bell near campus with Stewart Road, Taco Bell, Stewart Road. And then right next to that, you, you wouldn't even notice it. It's so small and insignificant are these little apartments. And, and what had happened was there was a, a line of traffic going down there, and then somebody had wanted to turn left into the apartments, and, and, and so they had put on their brakes. Well, we didn't know any of that. All we were doing is driving down Providence. We're kind of probably right in front of the Taco Bell when all of a sudden the minivan in front of us hits their brakes and the brake lights come on, and, and Madeline hits her brakes, uh, not as fast as I would have liked, but, but she hits her brakes. And then the minivan in front of us, well, the brake lights go off. And so to Madeline, that makes sense to hit the accelerator, right? But they had only gone off, the brake lights in front of us had only gone off briefly because they came right back on, but not before we plowed into the back of the minivan. And it was a chain reaction because all the cars in front of her had stopped. And so we hit the minivan, which hit the other cars in front of us. And so uh, this is a picture of, of the Honda Civic that I had been driving. It was totaled. And if you got up really close to that picture, you could see that my daughter is laying down in the front seat because she didn't want a picture of her sitting behind a wrecked car, by the steering wheel of a wrecked car. Um, but right when we first initially plowed into that van in front of us, I mean within like, it seemed like a half a second, we hit there and we're both sitting there and, and she goes, that was your fault. 
And I go, my fault. I told you to go slow at the, at the pool. I said, it's wet. You need to go slow. It's going to be a little, little slick out there. And she said, over the years, you have created a culture of hurry in our house. And that's why I was hurrying. And so, <laughs> what do you say to that? I'm like, I mean, this is all just a boom, 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 boom. It's your fault. My fault? Yes, you've created a culture of hurry. And I'm laughing, and she goes, you are not going to let me drive anymore, are you? And I said, you can drive. I don't care. You can drive home for all I care. It makes me different. And then I go, oh, hang on. You can drive as soon as you say, this was my fault. And she goes, I'm not ready to admit that yet. <laughs> Admitting that you're wrong is hard. Admitting that you're wrong is a struggle. Being honest about what's going on in the inside is difficult. Jonah was worried about the outside of his cup. He was worried about his appearances. It was hard for him to have an honest prayer of repentance. He just couldn't bring himself to do it. Because he couldn't be honest about what was happening inside of him. See, one of the ways we fight hypocrisy, one of the ways we fight false spirituality, one of the ways we fight play acting and pretending is by honestly confessing our sins. So if we're going to think about what does it mean to rightly repent, if Joan has given us a picture of what does it mean to, to falsely repent, to play act, what does it look like to do it for real? And I think it starts with being specific about our sin before God. One of the things that's mentioned, or that's missing, I'm sorry, in, in Jonah's prayer is any mention about his sin. God had called him to go to Nineveh, and he had refused. He had instead run away from God. There's no mention of the consequences of his sin, about how he put other people's life in danger. Instead, he speaks generally or vaguely, just like we do. Hey, I, I'm struggling. You, you know I'm not perfect. You know I'm a sinner. Well, thanks for clearing that up. We weren't sure until you told us, you know? So what, what if we were more specific in our sin, or more specific in our confessions to God and others? What if we said, I, I, I spoke harshly. I gossiped about you. I lied. That was proud of me. Arrogant. Self-righteous. There's something about, about the specificity of naming our sin that causes us to be honest before God and other people. I know in my marriage to Christine, I have had to work hard at, 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 at this issue. My, my issue is, or my, my tendency is to just say, well, you know, I, I know I'm not perfect. I'm struggling. I, I screwed up. And sometimes, to be honest, I, I said that. Like, I remember one time I go, look, I am so sorry. And she goes, you don't even know what you're sorry for, do you? And I'm like, no, not really. I mean, you know, I just want peace so badly that I'll admit I'm the antichrist if somehow we can just kind of move on. But what I realized is that when I wasn't specific about how I had hurt her, it, it just didn't, it, well, the apology and the confession and the asking for forgiveness, it all just seemed so hollow. So what if you, what if you were specific about your sin? What if you even pushed down in your heart 
I was angry with you, and I spoke harshly because you wouldn't give me what I wanted. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. That is so counterintuitive, isn't it? Because all we want to do is hide and conceal our sin. It seems like if we can hide it, if we can make the outside look clean, that, that, that's what will make us happy. That's what, what causes us to prosper. It's so counterintuitive to, to go, no, I need to admit it. I need to be honest about it. It's like when you spill something. When I was a kid, I'd spill something on the cushion and I turned it over. I just flipped it over so nobody would see it. I just wanted to hide it. That's what I want to do with my sin. I just want to flip it over and hide it. James 5.16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. If there's something we hate more than being honest before God about our sin and specific with God about our sin, it is being honest and specific with other people about our sin. And yet God says that is where healing is found. When I was in... Uh, after I became a Christian in college, I got involved in this campus group, and then I, I, I eventually was like a senior there, and, and I, um, well, the best thing for my faith, I think, maybe, maybe the best thing when I was in college, is there was a group of guys I would meet with. We would meet in the basement of Memorial Union on Friday mornings. There was a little cafe down there then. You could get breakfast. We'd sit and eat breakfast, and we would just be honest about the sins that we were struggling with, specific, and we would pray for one another. And it was so hard to do at first and so incredibly good for us in the middle of it. I still have a few friends today that I do that with. They are my, what I would say, my best friends, the people that I trust the most, is I can just be honest and know that they will love me and care about me and respect me and pray for me and don't hold it against me. And they share the same with me. Do you, do you have a group like that? That you can be honest about life with? Specific about your sin? That's where it starts. With specificity. But then true repentance it accepts responsibility. It doesn't try to blame shift. Back in the 80s and 90s, the televangelists Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were a big deal. They spit all the stereotypes. They had big hair. They uh, uh, lived in these kind of palatial estates while, while they took money from people. Eventually, Jim Baker's uh, kind of televangelist empire fell into hard times. And uh, uh, the Charlotte Observer, the newspaper, found out evidence that he had had uh, committed adultery, that he had an affair, committed adultery, and, and they pressed him on it. And they were getting ready to go to press with this news when he issued this apology, this repentance. What, what, what do you think about it? He said, I sorrowfully acknowledge that seven years ago, in an isolated incident, I was wickedly manipulated by treacherous former friends and then colleagues who victimized me with the aid of a female confederate. They conspired to betray me into a sexual encounter at a time of great stress in my marital life. Vulnerable as I was at the time, I was set up as part of a scheme to co-opt me and obtain some advantage for themselves over me in connection with their hope for position in the ministry. 
I mean, this poor guy, like just victimized by this woman, right? You just feel, end up feeling sorry for this guy. But he hasn't accepted responsibility. Instead, he's blamed all these other people. But who do you blame about your sin? Like, don't you have that same tendency inside of you? Yeah, I was tired. I've been studying all night. My allergies were bad. You know, you know that they, 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 they you come up with all these reasons why it really wasn't as what they thought it was. That yes, you did blow it, but if they understood all the circumstances around you, around you that you were living in, all the struggles and hardships, you wouldn't be someone that they look down on. You'd be almost a hero. It's amazing you've been able to hold it together as long as you have under all the stress you're on, you're enduring. Stop blame shifting. I blew it. I own it. Three, there's a change of direction. A change of direction. In his prayer, Jonah says, I will go back to Jerusalem to the temple. <laughs> You're not supposed to go to the Jerusalem, Jonah. God called you to go to Nineveh. If you're really repenting, then you want to get on board with what God has called you to do. When the, when, when, when the religious leaders were coming out to John the Baptist, and he was a little suspicious of their, the, the authenticity of their faith, he said to them, he said, produce fruit. Produce fruit in line with repentance. In other words, when we're genuinely repenting before God, our life begins to change, and we begin to follow him more closely. Not perfectly, because we all struggle with the same sins over and over, but over time, where true repentance is taking place, there will be a change of behavior. And then finally, you have to ask yourself, am I sorrowful because I've sinned against God, or am I sorrowful because I've been caught? Am I sorrowful because I've dishonored God, my Savior, or rebelled against Him? Or am I sorrowful because my sin has been exposed? One of the things that, unfortunately, I have to deal with is that guys who come into my office at church and they want to talk because they have blown it, oftentimes they've blown it in their relationship with their wife. They have uh, cheated on her, committed adultery, something like that. And it's a conversation that I'm not unfamiliar having with, with guys. And, and w one of the things that is a big indicator of how this is going to play out in their life is did they come to me because their conscience bothered them? Because the spirit convicted them? Or did they come to me because their wife caught them? It, the, the guys, even the guys who have really massively blown it and committed a series of major sins, if their conscience bothered them, if the Spirit of God convicted them, if they sought me out and told me, if they told their wife and their wife didn't know, it goes far better for them usually than the person who was caught and only comes to talk to me because their wife makes them do it. Because they appear to be sorrowful, but they're not sorrowful that they sinned against God. They're sorrowful that they've been caught in it. They're embarrassed, not repentant. Let's 
put Proverbs 28, 13 back on the screen for just a moment. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals their sin does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces their sins, that's the one who finds mercy. Has there some part of your life, maybe some sin that God's been putting his finger on you? Maybe there's some sin in your life that God's been convicting you of preceding this weekend. Or maybe it's something that has come into your mind even while we've been sitting here together today. What are you going to do with it? Are you going to conceal it and hide it? Are you going to confess it and renounce it? Are you going to protect your image and try to appear to be somebody you're not, keeping the outside of the cup clean? Or are you going to be honest and authentic and share it with a friend, maybe a staff member, a good, trusted friend, who you can say, this is where I am. This is what's happening. This is the sin that I'm struggling with. Will you, like James 5.16 says, pray for me that we might find healing? Jesus loves to forgive. Jesus forgives sinners. No matter what you've done, it is not so big that Jesus can't and won't forgive it. Stop hiding it. Bring it to Jesus. Find healing and hope. Let's pray. Father, you are good and kind and merciful. You are patient with us in our sin. I pray, Father, that if there's anything that you want us to deal with, that we do it before we leave this weekend. That we'd be honest with you and maybe honest with someone else here at the retreat. But we wouldn't go home protecting and hiding we wouldn't go home pretending to be something that we're not. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.